Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ and welcome to First Presbyterian Church. We are so glad that you're here with us today. Thank you for being with us and, and I hope that while you are here you will read through the bulletin, you will meet some people and you will discover new ways that you can connect with us in our mission to make disciples who love Jesus Christ, who love one another and who love this city. It is so good to have all of you all here this morning, but I want to tell you about something that happened to me yesterday. Yesterday I woke up, yesterday morning I woke up to a text message from my mother, and it included a picture of her back porch in Columbia, South Carolina, covered in two inches of snow. Now, as a little kid, I grew up being very skeptical about the weatherman. I don't know how many times I was promised that school would be canceled because of the snow only to wake up and find out that we still had school and I still hadn't done my homework. But this last Thursday, something happened. This last Thursday, when every school district in San Antonio shut down, I started getting calls from members of our congregation, from members of our staff, all wanting to know, are we closing tomorrow? Are we going to be closing tomorrow? And I, I, looked, I looked at that and I thought, wow, this is, this is something that everybody wants to know. I have to make a decision that's going to affect a lot of people. Are we going to be open for all of our Bible studies and for all of our programs and all that sort of thing tomorrow? And in the back of my mind, I had this conflict going because I, I looked at the weather apps and I looked at the reports and, and you know, it's like, how can you have freezing rain when number one, it never dips below freezing and when there's no rain? But that being said, it is San Antonio, and you never know what's going to happen. Uh, and as I started to think about it, I, I not only thought about the current weather conditions, but I started thinking about that snowstorm that we had last February. I thought, oh, even though it looks really nice outside, I'm not sure because maybe I need to be taking this more seriously because it really can happen here. So I'm not sure what to do. So over the course of the night, from the time I went to the bed to the time I woke up in the morning, I was checking the weather channel, checking the apps. I couldn't sleep real well. I just, I wanted to figure out what was going on. Now, I was looking at it and eventually, as you all know, every school closed, but we stayed open and that's just the way it played out. But I want to ask you a question. When it comes to weather, when it comes to snow days and conditions like that, who do you trust? Whom do you trust when it comes to the weather? Do you trust the weather app on your phone? Do you trust the local weather channel and meteorologist? Do you trust the weather channel as you watch it on cable? Or are you one of those people like me who does not believe that it is going to snow until you actually walk outside and feel snowflakes on your face? Which one are you? Whom do you trust when it comes to snow and snow days? Or whom do you trust when it comes to the weather? Let me expand that question a little bit. Let's step back for a second. Whom do you trust when it comes to news about COVID? Whom do you trust when it comes to news about politics? Whom do you trust with tax advice or professional challenges or personal crises? Who do you trust for your news? Who do you trust in matters of life and death? Whom do you trust in matters of morality? Whom do you trust in the matter of eternal life? 
Who do you trust and whom do you take seriously? And I mean when it really matters. Since the beginning of this year, we've been studying the New Testament book of Hebrews. The first people who heard and read this book of Hebrews were actually not converted pagans, but rather they were converted Jews. They were people who were reared in the faith of Israel and who now followed Jesus Christ as Israel's Messiah. But you know what? Their faith was starting to waver. These former Jews were now persecuted Christians. They were actually suffering for their faith. They had lost freedom and property. They were people who knew what it meant to be rejected by family and friends and colleagues for Jesus' sake. They knew what it meant to suffer for their faith. And they were beginning to ask questions like, do we really want to do this? Can we really trust Jesus? Can we really believe in him? Do we dare bet our lives on him? Do we dare to take Jesus seriously? And the author of Hebrews is just pleading with them, don't give up. Don't fall back. Don't lose heart. Jesus is real and Jesus is worth it. And whatever our sufferings, whatever our temptations, we feel that we have to, whatever our compromises are that we feel that we have to make, we don't want to drift away from the truth and the promises of God. No matter what we think we have to do to survive, we don't want to let those things drift away and neglect our salvation. Now, yes, we have to take our situation seriously, but we also have to take sin seriously. And we have to take salvation seriously. And we have to take eternity seriously. And so the author of Hebrews is telling them it's not time to abort. It's not time to reconsider or compromise our faith. No, it's time to double down and trust Jesus. It's time that we take our salvation and especially our Savior seriously. So here's what the preacher of Hebrews says in chapter 2 beginning in verse 5. Now, this is a lengthy passage this morning, and I I ask you to just keep it handy in your bulletin or in your pew Bible, but we're going to be referring back to it several times. But, But read along with me as I read aloud. Now, it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, that's Jesus, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of your congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, Behold, I and the children God has given me. 
Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Let us pray. O oh Lord, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. I pray that this morning you would push away the gloom of night by the light of your newborn son. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be holy and acceptable to you, O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. For it is in the name of your Son, our precious Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and by the power of the Holy Spirit that we pray. Amen. So as I was reading this passage in the earlier service, and as I was reading back through it last night, I kept saying to myself, wow, this is a thick passage. There is a lot going on here. As a matter of fact, I would, I would beg to say that this may be one of the most theologically dense passages in all of the New Testament. And so I'm only saying that as a disclaimer to ask you to bear with me because there are so many important things that we must address within this passage, but they all come down to a focal point in one question. And that one question is, whom do you trust most when it really matters? Whom do you take seriously? Especially when we're talking about matters of life and death, peace and family, of death and eternal life. Whom do you take seriously? Well, the answer for the author of Hebrews is Jesus. And this whole book is about who he is. And as we move through this argument that we have just read, I'm going to propose that the author of Hebrews gives us six reasons to consider for why we have to take Jesus seriously. First, it's because of his sovereignty. Jesus is superior to angels, and he is sovereign over all Things. This has been the focus of our last two weeks as we've gone through this study. We have to remember that when we're talking about Jesus, we are talking about God made flesh. He was not simply a holy man. He was not just a wandering teacher or a role model. He is, the scripture tells us, Emmanuel, God with us. Now, what does that mean? It means that Jesus did not just make the world a better place. Jesus made the world. He is in charge. He is in control of all things. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. 
Hebrews goes on to say that he is crowned with glory and honor, putting everything, listen to this, in subjection under his feet. Everything in subjection to him, and nothing, it says, is outside of his control. And look at verse 8. At present, we do not yet see this. You know, that's kind of where we are. This is the situation of the people of Hebrews, these people to whom this letter was written, but it's also our situation as well. Here, our doctrine tells us, our, the Bible tells us, even our faith tells us that Jesus is in control. But I have to confess, there are many times when I'm like the people of Hebrews and I'm wondering, is this worth it? Is this for real? Do I really take this seriously? Because there are a lot of other threats. There are a lot of other promises. There are a lot of other temptations that I have to deal with. And I have to ask myself, is God really in control? And yeah, I'll confess, sometimes I wonder that. Is God really in control? But here's one thing I absolutely know for certain. That no matter how hard I try, I know that I am definitely not in control. And maybe you've discovered that too. I know that every time I try to take control of the things that are rightly God's, things go sideways. Things fall apart. And even though it doesn't always look like it, I do believe and I'm reminded that God is in control because I see the way his purposes work out as opposed to the way my purposes work out. And here's why this is so important for us. Here's why we need to take Jesus seriously as the one in control. Because he knows what we don't know. He is the person that we want on our side. He sees what we can't see. He understands situations that we can't understand. And he does exactly what must be done, not only for his glory, but for our good. Here's the thing. He's not just the weatherman. He's the rainmaker. He doesn't study or forecast the weather. He makes the weather. So you know what? If he tells you to wear a raincoat, wear a raincoat. If he tells you to bring an umbrella, bring an umbrella. Because all things have been put into under, uh, under subjection under him. And so we see from Scripture that he's in charge, and yet, at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. This brings us to point number two. We have to take Jesus seriously because of his submission. Even though Jesus has universal authority and is in universal control, he set all of that aside 2,000 years ago to show us the importance of giving God authority and control in our lives. He did it to show us the importance of putting him in the driver's seat. Christ came to earth, says the author of Hebrews, and became lower than angels to show us what it means to trust God and put him in control. Remember this. Jesus would not ask us to do anything that he has not done first. You've all heard the old expression, put your money where your mouth is. My grandmother always said, that's very coarse. But you know what? We get it. We understand it. 
And this passage, this book, this entire gospel is about trust. And what we see here is that Jesus wanted to prove that God could be trusted before he ever asked us to trust him. Before he ever asked us to obey, he was obedient. Before he ever asked us to forgive, he forgave. And before he commanded us to love our neighbors and to love one another with everything we've got, he went all the way. Everything Jesus has asked of us, he did first. And he did it, third, for the sake of our salvation. So the reason we take him seriously is because of his saving ministry. Everything was under him, but he put himself under everything to save us. Now at this point we need to beg the question, to save us from what? To save us from whom? Jesus came to save us from what we deserve. Jesus came to save us from the righteous judgment of God and to save us from ourselves. 1 John chapter 1 says this, that if we say that we have no sin, then we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. As a matter of fact, moreover, if we say that we have no sin, then we are calling God a liar. Sin is so pervasive that we cannot and have not escaped it. The fact is, we have not loved God, not like he deserves. Instead, largely, we've disrespected him, we've ignored him, we've mocked him. We've ignored the consequences of his truth, and we've bought into a culture that ignores him and perverts his gifts. And, beloved, we've not loved others. All of us have at some point lied or betrayed or manipulated to get what we want. And all of us have been mean and selfish at some point. And all of us have ignored the pain of others because it didn't affect us right then and there. And all of us have wanted to do things our own way. We've all wanted to be in control. And in the words of Dr. Phil, how's that working for you? And God takes these things seriously. All these things together represent what we call sin. And God takes sin seriously because when it comes to sin, there is no such thing as a victimless crime. God is not going to tell people, the people that we hurt, with our selfishness, our anger, and our apathy, you know what, it's no big deal, just get over it. Because that would immediately be telling those people, you don't matter. And when we're hurt, God doesn't tell us, oh, just get over it, it doesn't matter. Buck up. Because we know that it does matter. And when we blaspheme God, when we ignore God, when we don't take God seriously, he's not going to tell the universe, I don't matter. My existence doesn't matter. My truth doesn't matter. My power doesn't matter. Because if he were to do that, our entire universe would fall to pieces. 
God is not going to pretend that sin doesn't matter. Even though we are so absorbed in it, even though we are so imbibed in it, that God is not going to say that truth and integrity and goodness and evil don't matter. God takes our sin and our rebellion against him and against one another seriously. Sin is real. And we are all guilty and we are all victims. So here's the question. What is a loving God, what is a loving God to do when the children that he loves commit the sin that he hates against themselves, against one another, and against him? How does he prove that he really does care about the pain that we afflict about the pain we endure, about the things we do without destroying us? How can he save us from one another, from ourselves, and the consequences that we deserve? His answer is Jesus. Jesus came to save us from one another, came to save us from ourselves, He came to save us from the consequences we deserve. And he did it all by his substitution. That's point number four. What does that mean? It's very simple. It means that he took our place. Verses 14 and 15 say that he became human and subjected himself to all human problems and challenges to overcome those same challenges that we face and to restore holiness to humanity. He did everything that we should have done and paid the price for every lousy and selfish sin that we've ever done. He lived the life that no human could live and endured the death that no human could survive and every human sinner deserves so that we could know the love that God wants us to know and that he made us to know, and so that we can have the destiny that he created us to have. In 2 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul puts it like this, For our sake he made him who had no sin to be sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. He became our substitute So we don't get what we deserve, we get what he deserves. Look, in this word, uh, in this passage, there's an important word. Verse 17. Therefore, he he had to be made like his brothers in every respect to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Everybody say propitiation. Oh, that was good. Okay, we didn't even have to do that one again. But propitiation is a heavy theological word. And it means an offering of appeasement. It's a gift that someone gives to another to restore a relationship. It's a peace offering, if you will. And in this case, Jesus has said, I am your gift. The author of Hebrews says he is the gift that was given to get us back into a right relationship with God. 
Jesus Christ, God with us, gave himself as a sacrifice to God on our behalf for the sake of our relationship with God. And Dr. Ligon Duncan, who was our lecturer this uh, past fall, put it this way, what God requires, God himself provides in Jesus Christ. He is both the giver and the gift. And therefore, because he took our place so that we would not be destroyed, he is the embodiment of both God's justice, the fact that God really does take sin seriously, and his mercy. And he did what we could never do. And so the fifth point that the author of Hebrews brings up in this passage is that we must take Jesus Christ seriously because of his sufficiency. His sufficiency. Jesus gave his life for our sins because it had to be Jesus. It had to be him. He is the only sufficient sacrifice. The son of God, who was, who was the son of man, was the only person ever born who could do what needed to be done. He is the only one who could take it, who could endure it, who could survive it. And he is the only one with enough to give. I want you to consider this. What if all of a sudden we had to answer for every lousy thing, every mean thing, every thoughtless thing, every selfish, immoral, perverse, disrespectful, bigoted, false, manipulative, thoughtless, or reckless thing that we have ever done or said? All at once, margin call on your life. What if all of a sudden you had to pay back every debt you owe or make up for every problem that you've ever caused or make amends to every person that you ever hurt? Could you handle that? I'm talking about want right at once. They show up here right now. Could you handle that? Beloved, the Bible tells us that we, can't even, we cannot even survive the retribution of our own sin, much less anybody else's. And that's why he's the only sacrifice, good enough and big enough to take care of and cover the sin of all God's people. He's the only one with the value and the magnitude to save us. And so finally, we have to understand that all this would be meaningless without his sympathy. You see, he could be the most powerful God in the universe. Incidentally, he is. And that would mean absolutely nothing if he didn't care. But he does. Our God is not a God who binge-watches our pain and our joy and our struggles and our triumphs from the comfort of his own throne. No, he is the God who cares. He's the God who became one of us. He's the one who got down in the mud and the blood and the mess and the stress of our lives to prove it. Jesus did not die for his sin. He died for ours. He became one of us. He took on flesh and dwelt among us to prove how much he loves us. So, Merry Christmas. 
And Hebrews makes the point as clearly as any book in the Bible. Hebrews says, For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. So happy Easter. This is the God we serve. This is the God we trust. And this is the God that we must take seriously. Because what other so-called God ever did that? Search history, search mythology, give me his name. You won't find it. And that's why there is no name that is higher than the name of Jesus. His name is the name that is above every other name. His particular historical name. Name for me another God, another idol, another ideology or political party or social group or amount of money or business or human institution that ever gave itself to the point of destruction for your eternal life, even for your peace in this life. Usually, the other so-called gods of our life demand sacrifice, and yet Jesus gave himself as a sacrifice. And having once suffered, Jesus is now able and willing to help those who are suffering. We take Jesus seriously because he gets us. And because he's done what no other so-called God or idol would ever do. He gave himself because he loves us and he understands us. And he cared enough to prove it with his own nail-scarred hands and feet. Hebrews calls him the founder of our faith. And he's the founder of our faith because he is both the object of our faith, the one that we trust, and he is the one who showed us that we really can trust God and take him seriously. He was the one who gave his life so that we could have the relationship that we were created to have and live the destiny that God created us to live. So whom do you take seriously? Especially when we're talking about matters of life and freedom, of peace and family, of death and eternal life. Shouldn't we take him more seriously? Let us pray. Oh Lord, we come to you today because we are overwhelmed by distractions, we are overwhelmed. By competitors, we are overwhelmed. By alternatives to you. And it's not that we reject you outright, oh God, it's that we minimize you. We relegate you to the sidelines. We dismiss you, we ignore you, all that stuff. Lord, just as you showed us that we must trust you with everything, help us to trust you with everything. Help us to take you seriously so that we will know the rest that you promise and the relationship that you, that you set up for us from the foundation of the world. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.